you can immediately dispel the questions or even some of the like low level concerns that maybe an organization has about its security program or even its leader because they know they're always going to get the not the right answer but they're going to get the honest answer about the situation or their question and that's important because the answer might not be you know a positive one right but it's not always going to be a negative one but it's going to be the answer that you know you can stand behind as a leader for security from exabeam this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. I'm Steve Moore, and on today's show, I sit down with Brian Hoagley, partner at Side Channel Security, a CISO advisory and consulting firm in the Boston area. As a former CISO at Hanover Insurance Group, Brian shares what it means to be an honest broker. In the context of security leadership, the learning opportunities that come with candor and the honest truth about managing the inherent stress of the position. It's often said that you can't defend what you cannot see. Along those same lines, when it comes to security leadership, you can't defend what you can't articulate. In their executive role, the CISO is required to be an honest broker, an arbiter of truth about the security posture of an organization. It's incumbent on them to help the organization align security priorities with business priorities and transparently explain them in often non-technical terms to an often non-infosec audience. In that same vein, the spirit of honest, open communication is also applied to coaching teams, driving initiatives and running programs in what's typically a high stakes environment. It makes integrity a must and stress a given. Brian, how does somebody with a technical background, uh, with the, the background that you have, uh, maybe you could spend a second on that, end up being a, a CISO and ultimately a coach uh, and a virtual CISO? How does that, how does one bridge one to the other? It, it definitely is a journey. It sounds kind of cliche, but it is. Um, there was a lot to be learned from going from being very technical to, you know, my technical teams yelling at me to get away from the keyboard. Um, you know, how I, how I got to that, you know, as I started out in, in a much more technical, you know, field of doing pen testing and systems and enterprise architecture, um, even storage administration and, and all of that, and then wrapping security services um, within that, as I moved to understand where I could actually make change, the biggest aha moment was seeing that I was always following somebody else's policy. Like no matter what I wanted to change or say we needed to do, it was policy that dictated how an organization implemented something. So when I was working within uh, Pentagon and, and a little bit before that, I really, really focused on the, um, on, on the policy management and the implementation side of those things and starting to learn that. And then that grew to a better understanding of security kind of programmatics, which essentially is what you know the CISO is in charge of and their responsibility sets is the the program of security for an organization. So it was a you know it's a loose way of going from one to the other and and letting go of the technical side but it's um it's something I think that you really need to to be able to learn that's not I don't think it's as apparent to to most people as they uh, as they think. What advice would you give to your younger self uh if there's an an aspiring uh, future leader or current leader that wants to maybe become a team lead 
or a director or CISO somewhere in that, what advice would you give looking back on that based on what you just shared? I think finding somebody who, who's really strong in that and, and also strong at sharing. You know, there's a, I think there's a lot of leaders out there who are, are technically very capable, very smart, even respected, but just don't, they, they just, they hold on to it too much. You've got to find somebody who's willing to invest time. And, and that was something I always tried to seek out were other mentors to learn from. Um, but I think I could have done a lot better in, in maybe staying with some of them to learn, learn some more. Um, as well as maybe just even branching into other ancillary areas. I think people get too stovepiped. And that's probably one big feedback I give my younger self is don't focus so much on one area or another. Really, really be open to the, the ancillary spaces within security, you know, looking at uh, human behavior, looking at the legal side of things and pulling that information in to help round you out. I like that. That's, you said something I think that was very interesting. Staying with someone, uh, a leader or a mentor a little longer, meaning that if you're in a location or in a, in a, in a job or a post where you have somebody that you can learn from uh, to make more use of that, um, providing it's the right person. Do you, think yes. we, do you think we have a challenge there? I mean, do you think that there's, is there a core of bad leadership and in information security that makes it hard to achieve that or, or not? Not everyone is born to be a leader. Um, and I think if you just play the numbers game, how many people truly understand IT? And then within that, how many people actually truly understand security. So you, you get this, this diminishing amount of you know, available workforce that now within those who understand security, how many of those people were born good leaders? Right? How many of them got into that field and are capable of, of being able to lead a team, lead an organization, or just even mentor an individual and, and share their experiences? So you know, it's, it's a small, small workforce. I don't think it, there's bad leaders in InfoSec. Um, I just don't think there's enough of them. Uh, obviously, you made your career on being on a keyboard, uh, as many of us have, uh, most of us have. What's the hardest part about that? And, and when did you have to make that transition? How did you make that decision that you're going to step away? It's, um, I think it's about control. Um, you know, people who know me um, will joke that I, you know, I like to get hands-on. And it's because um, I like to be in control because I know that if I do it the way that I do it, it's going to get done the way that I would like to see it get done. It's something that I, you know, I struggle with all the time, trying to let go and let, uh, you know, let somebody else on my team who I've brought on for good reasons. I trust them. I believe in them. You know, you have to bring good people onto your team. You have to build your, your, your team, but you can't do that work for them. That's why you brought them on. You know, where I made that change was, was probably in this last role I was in as, as, as a CISO. That role forced me to do it. One, because I just didn't have the time. You know, I'm talking to the board. I'm talking to leadership. I'm working with vendors and work, you know, I don't have the time to be able to do everything that my team is supposed to be doing. So, you know, time management alone just forced me to do it. You know, after a certain amount of time, you're not the freshest on certain technologies or, you know, software. And the, the newer, younger generation that's coming in is. And, and you know, I'm not going to play and pretend that I can do, you know, what those guys and girls are doing. You know, I have to trust that they can and, and they do. I, I love that answer. You know, you're giving feedback on really what it takes to be a leader in, in information security and sort of protect and drive the interests uh, and the priorities of the program and ultimately protect, be that air cover uh, for the engineer, for the analyst, uh, which was one of my favorite things uh, as, as a leader to kind of be that, that provide that air cover 
Uh, and you came to sort of the natural conclusion to say, hey, look, I've got to do all this extra work. I don't have time to be on a keyboard, but more importantly, that is your job. Um, mm -hmm. I think people still struggle with that some. Any other thoughts on that? I mean, do you agree that that's a, that, that transition? And, and do you think there's a point based on company size that if you're a small team versus a big team, you know, do you have to wear both hats or can you do both? I think at, on a smaller organization, you're going to wear more hats because there's just not enough people for that work to go around. Um, and then the larger organizations, you know, what I learned was I could sit down, you know, a team of, you know, four or five analysts, teach them in, you know, one to two hours how I would do something. And now I've got, I've multiplied my capabilities, right, by five. And that's much more effective than me trying to do that, you know, individually. But the, the smaller teams, the smaller orgs, you know, they're, they are struggling with being able to address this. And I think that's where, you know, I try to find, you know, a niche for, for developing, you know, some work and some, you know, some support and kind of driving insight and guidance to these groups because, you know, they need help. I think you're referencing some of the work you're doing and, and started around 2017 with uh, side channel security. Uh, you want to spend a, just a quick moment on that to talk about kind of what, why you started that and uh, what sort of, what benefits uh, that practice provides to the company that might need this direction? Sure. Yeah, we, we started as a virtual CISO service offering and, and risk assessment and management uh, consulting firm. Uh, and we saw the need that small and medium businesses, nonprofits, uh, VC-backed software firms don't need a CISO full-time, probably can't carry the weight of one on their payroll full-time, but still, still need that kind of guidance and that expertise. Um, you know, I don't think large company, small company, you know, security advice is dr going to drastically differ between the sizes of them. So you know, as we started talking to some firms and our first client was the nonprofit, you know, realizing the questions and the concerns were the same things that we had heard from our peers and larger organizations or our own organizations at the time. And then it just kind of, it just, you know, uh, built upon itself and it's been really good. And I think, you know, that's what I like, it's, you know, call me, call me old fashioned a, a little bit or, or, you know, somewhat of a, a patriot, but like, you know, this country allows for companies to, to build themselves um, up and being a small business is kind of the backbone of America. I love that. And I love seeing people get out and get their ideas going, but then to see that they're dealing with the same threats and have no idea of how to, how to turn it and really defend themselves or make the right decisions. You know, that, that kind of scares me, right? I'd, I'd like to know that, you know, small shops that I become dependent on that I like to go to um, or doctor's offices, lawyer's offices, small offices, I want to know that they're still in business, you know, in, in a couple of years. Something like 60% of small and medium businesses don't last a year after a breach. And you look back at some of them and it's, they, they don't know what they're supposed to protect or not protect. So focusing in on that area has been an area that I just, I'm passionate about. And I think it's a niche market because it's, it's really underserved. So speaking of, you mentioned that the questions and the sort of the issues, whether it's a small company uh, which you serve with uh, side channel security or a larger company uh, for which like Hanover Group um, with, with you, you know, you most recently uh, worked for, what questions do you answer the most or which questions you ask the most? Well, it's usually the one that I ask the most, which is why are you in business? What are you trying to defend? Right. What is it that's going to be a bad day for you? And you look at the standards, they, you know, the, the CIS controls or what used to be known as the SANS top 20, you know, they start right there. Full inventory of your hardware, full inventory of your software, right? I've got a, a bit of a mantra that, you know, I can't defend what I don't know exists. And 
it, it, that's really it, you know, asset identification, asset allocation. If it's your identities, like who has access to your systems, your data, what data do you have? Where is it stored? What systems are you currently on? What systems um, are your systems connecting to? Who has access in? Who's a third party? You know, it's amazing how many organizations can't answer these simple questions. And that makes up the, the whole kind of battlefield that, you know, a security leader, a practitioner, you know, and ultimately the business owner has to be able to account for and say, this is what I need to secure because this is what makes me a business. It's always interesting if you talk to different groups within an organization, how many varieties of, of answers you get to what are, what are the business objectives for that company? You know, sales will give you one answer. IT will give you another. Legal might give you another. And that causes a bit of a rift and a problem because if not everybody's aligned on what the mission is for a company, they're not all working towards the same thing. You mentioned something earlier about uh, referencing the board and kind of conveying those messages. There is a concept when we spoke earlier, talked about being an honest broker of information. And can you define just quickly, what is an honest broker when delivering a security message to the ELT or the board? What does that, what does that mean to you? I think it's, it's just about transparency and, and integrity, right? So, I mean, security, you know, the definition of security is confidentiality, integrity, and availability, right? The triad. And as the CISO, you know, your ability to obviously protect those things is, is one aspect, but your ability to showcase and, and really, I don't want to say sell because that sounds wrong, but like really just embody the integrity of what it is that is being expected of you. Turning that around and then being able to explain that in terms that honestly, uh, chances are a non-technical person and someone who definitely doesn't even understand information security is going to understand, but you have to make it real for them. You have to make it put in their terms. And again, I, I can't stress this enough, it's the transparency of what it is that you're dealing with on a, on a day-to-day or quarter-by-quarter. Quarter. That's not only I feel is important, but when you really start showcasing that, you can immediately dispel the questions or even some of the like low-level concerns that maybe an organization has about its security program or even its leader, because they know they're always going to get the not the right answer, but they're going to get the honest answer about the situation or their question. And that's important because the answer might not be, you know, a positive one, right? But it's not always going to be a negative one, but it's going to be the answer that, you know, you can stand behind as a leader for security and that executive management can see that and and know that that's the God's honest truth about where they are right now in the kind of in that security posture. So people want, you're saying that the, the board in particular sort of wants the truth, but, but do they really, do they, do they always really want the tr- truth? And are, is there anyone else that may not want you to share the truth? I mean, there's, there's people that report up through, you know, the board is what everyone talks about, but there's other levels. There's the ELT and below. How, how tell me about that. I mean, do they always really want the truth? I think everybody always wants the truth, but I, what, what they want is to make sure that you're not, you know, positioning as if the sky is falling on every conversation you're having, right? So you're trying to really not, you know, startle anybody or get anybody too excited about something that maybe, you know, they shouldn't be. And it's, it's about uh, talking about the level of risk at an appropriate level, right? So structuring, you know, your answer, structuring the topic that you're, you're delivering so that 
you know, it, nobody gets too, you know, outside of themselves and gets upset about something maybe they shouldn't. And I think most senior leaders really want to hear, and I've seen this across my whole career, is just tell me it is honestly what it is that you want to tell me, right? As far as the answer go. But what they really want to hear at the end of it is that you've, you've got it under control. Like you have a plan. And this goes for any, I think any management level, you never want to go to your boss with, okay, here's the problem. What do you want to do about it? Right. I've never operated that way. I, I've never, and this is the big feedback I give to younger folks. It's like, don't, don't just come to me with problems. You know, like you're in that position. You should be able to, you know, appropriately at whatever level you are, if you're an engineer or you're a manager, come to me with the problem, position what it is, but then tell me what are the options that we can, uh, we can tackle. And if you're really, you know, outside of yourself that you, you don't have the options, then you ask for that kind of a help. But I, f- I find it very, very scarce that you can get into a conversation like that and not come to the table with a number of options that are relevant and attainable and truly address the risk. So when you're in there and you're sharing this message and you're presenting to the board and let's say they, they see you as this honest broker, they, they, they trust what you're saying. Have you ever pissed anybody off in that process? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I have, you know, said, said maybe the wrong thing. I've been too quick, right. On, on maybe explaining something. I didn't give a thoughtful of enough answer. Um, and I know I've, I've definitely been in a, a Q and a situation. Um, not at, not at, um, my last position, but previously where I didn't know the answer and I didn't really position that I was willing to go figure it out. Um, I think that's the, that's a big pitfall some people have is that they feel as though they need to know all the answers all the time for everything. So you can't anticipate all of that. But what you can do is be completely honest in the fact that you don't know what you don't know, and then promise that you're going to go figure it out and come back to them with something. Um, so I can definitely say, you know, I've previously messed, you know, missed that mark. And, um, you know, I learned from it because I, I didn't make that mistake again. What about the situation where uh, you present and you know you, you you illustrate some element of risk. You talk about a problem that's going to require some amount of cooperation, uh, and then that message then is presented to the board. But was there ever a time where you didn't socialize the message, uh, sort of <laughs> internally before you shared it with the board? And you know, tell me about that if you've ever had that, and you know, what are some of the possible negative outcomes of that? Sure. Um, so. I don't think at a highest level I've I've made that mistake, um, but I've I've definitely done that at, at lower levels within uh, an organization where, you know, I, I should have taken the steps to really socialize what it was I was going to talk about, the concepts that I had, the risks I was going to position, because there could there could have been actually there were, were kind of another side to decisions that led to that risk that I wasn't aware of, and I didn't take the time to really go and figure out the whole story, and that's on me, right? That's not. That's not on anybody else. I didn't do, you know, what I was supposed to to be able to best prepare for that conver- that that next level of conversation. Um, and that's difficult, you know. Again, you know, I, I'm a younger guy, so I didn't have the most uh, experience at, at being an executive. And you know, I learned some things throughout that uh, throughout that time to to make me better. This is one of them. But you've got to, you know, make sure that you don't make that mistake again. I think that's what separates. Um, you know, good leaders from, from, you know, or at least successful leaders and, and managers from others is, you know, you don't consistently repeat the same mistake. Everyone seems to be on this march to get relevance. 
the CISO position and, and in security uh, overall is, is, is this, this issue of relevance and trying to, to get business aligned. I, do you think that we ever fail on that road? Do you think that we're in such a rush to go tell our story that we, we forget other things? And, and if we do, what are those other things that we forget to do? You mentioned as, as, a, as a younger leader, you missed some things. I mean, anything else there that, that is worth taking a moment, you know, pausing and talking about to share? I think the, uh, the thing that gets missed a lot is security doesn't exist without the business, right? It, it's not the other way around, right? We're not, we're not in that position for, the, for the, uh, the sake of a company or organization, right? The, the business is what's driving is, its existence. And I think IT went through this years ago. And, you know, IT as a whole kind of across, you know, companies and sectors grew up and figured that out, that they're not the coolest kid on the block and that they need to uh, really be in a business enabling support structure to make sure that the, the company is, is doing what it's doing. If it's profitable or, or delivering services. That's, that's an area I just feel, you know, security professionals as I talk to them and others, uh, they miss. I don't know why, but there's to some degree... As CISOs, some of us kind of have a bit of an ego as to like why we're there. And look, I get it. You know, it's a it, it's a hard field to be in, right? The stresses that come with it, but then the expectations around technical prowess and understanding, and be able to manage all of that, and be able to relay that in different ways. Yeah, there's guys and girls who are really good at at this at their job. They're really good at it, and to some degree, they know it. That can get in the way of why you're doing what you're doing in your organization and being successful. And I think that's something that I think a lot of CISOs who kind of fit that mold need to just break themselves of and, um, you know, just kind of come to the table with and say, look, it's not, it's not you, right? It's not all about you, at least. You know, you're part of a company, you're part of a business, they have a mission. What are you doing to support that mission? It's not the other way around. Yeah, I... I... I agree to that. I see, you know, we have this tendency, I think, sometimes in information security to have this sort of rock star persona. Exactly. Uh, and that, that can really lead <laughs> uh, to negative outcomes. Does this ego or could this ego among some get in the way of the adoption of an otherwise great security program? Of course you can. You know, you, you've got a you know, headstrong leader that sees things as their way or the highway. And they're obviously doing everything for you know the greater good, and however else you want to characterize it. If you take that type of a position into in an organization, even if you've built a great security program, they're not going to adopt it. They're not going to welcome you to the table. They're not going to allow you to address the risk that you've been charged to address. And you need them, just like they need you to be there. I mean, you're in the role for a reason, right? It was created not just because they had extra money. Um, you really need to be able to make uh, you know, your team to include all those other folks and you need to bring them along for the ride. And having an ego or just having that type of a, a view on things, that rock star mentality, that's not going to win you any friends whatsoever. You know, I'm a big fan of, I don't know if I can joke about this, but like I'm a big fan of Phil Jackson basketball, right? I lived in, the, in Chicago for all the years that the Bulls won. I'm not saying that they won because I was there, but all I know is before I moved there, they never won a championship. After I left, they never won a championship. It could have been me. It could have been Jordan. I don't know, but we'll leave it at that. He preached. Jordan was on the team. They didn't win any championships whatsoever. And he's a rock star. Like He is the rock star. And when Phil introduced and rounded out the rest of the team to include Pippen and Grant and Cartwright, that's when they started winning championships because 
that's how you win and that's how you succeed. It's never an individual effort. Never. No matter how many times we want to believe it is, it never is. So I, I always just try to remind myself, like, how does Phil Jackson do this? You know, he was a, he was not only just a foundational coach with like passing and dribbling wins basketball games, but he understood the dynamics of a team. And he understood if you got a rock star on your team, how do you surround that person and make that person the team player? And I think if you read up on Jordan, that was something that he had to go through and grow through to be able to realize his fullest potential as not just the superstar, but as like the lead on a team to then be successful. And you apply that same type of an approach to any other team dynamics, you're going to see night and day as far as the adoption of whatever it is you're trying to implement. I think that, that in that, I mean, to use that, that sort of analogy is that forget about the, the Pippin or the Jordan uh, or the Grant or the Rodman, but really maybe the CISO at that point needs to be more of the, the Steve Kerr uh, or the BJ Armstrong or the, the role player, the, the quieter champion that comes in that realizes that while they're important, that, that they're really not as important as maybe some others. Mm -hmm. So with that, I mean, you defined earlier, you kind of talked about this lack of self-awareness ego. I mean, is that the definition of uh, the worst archetype of CISO? Is that the worst? I think, I mean, it's bad. I don't want to categorize what I'm going to say is the worst, but I think there's a major difference between the CISO who has a, has a real technical understanding of everybody on his team or her team, right? And maybe those who kind of came through the CIO track or like the business track. Um, I think you're just going to be much more effective as a leader if you understand all the roles that your team members are capable of in doing. And I think that's one thing that I've differentiated myself on is I've, I've done just about everything that anybody on my team is I'm charging to do. Um, so I don't want to say that that's a, it's a bad thing to not have that technical expertise and understanding, but I don't think it, ben it really benefits, you know, a CISO if they're just sitting and talking at the board level or just, just managing. I think they need to have a deeper understanding to be really effective. Yeah. I, well, I think that the experience that, that I've had, I'll share is that you need to be the type of person that wants to learn and then give up everything you've learned in order to kind of grow as a, as a individual and then as a, as a leader and a team player, which is hard. You spend five, 10 years or more developing your tradecraft and then you have to give it up effectively, but you have to get more credibility in the eyes uh, of, of your team. Uh, that's a really great way to look at that. That's, that's a really good point. Let's spend a second on, on health. And, and on the, the CISO job or the security leadership, not every company has a CISO necessarily, but that security director and then health. More often than not, does the job of CISO, uh, is it a good job? I mean, it, it, isn't it kind of a, a no-win, caustic, kind of uh, high-stress, low-health thing? What do you think of it? I feel like some days it can be, but I keep volunteering and keep pursuing them. So there's got to be, there's something wrong with me in that respect, or it's not actually as bad as uh, we think about it. And I think the, the view, you know, you, you outline is probably the one that comes through when you see what's happening to a company because of maybe a breach, right? You, you can then immediately say and understand what the CISO is going through, right? That's, it's almost evident. And those are the stories that kind of come through. You know, we never hear about like the good days that CISOs have in an organization where they're, you know, 
quantifying risk and be able to drive risk down and, and making actual changes, right? Because those are, that doesn't bubble up, right? That never kind of comes through. But you're right, it, those days, those those days or months, those happen. Um, and it's, I think it's a very real thing that I don't see people talking about in the, in the right way, at least for that level. I will say on Twitter, a lot more people, especially in the InfoSec community, are really talking about mental health. And I think it's really important that people continue to talk about that and share, you know, what they've been through, if they're comfortable with it, but at least, you know, that that they understand and that there's resources out there for people to take advantage of. I think it's an under-recognized health issue for a people. You've got a lot riding on that job, and that job translates to your livelihood for yourself and your family and your future. So you know, the security of a company equating to, you know, you being able to provide for your your spouse and your kids. Yeah, that's huge. It's a huge thing to have to constantly have on your mind. So, you know, how do you deal with it? So we've talked about that this is, there's a high stress, both mental and physical. And you talked about how there's sort of a movement on social media, in particular, and Twitter on this. Uh, what are the ways foundationally, without being too cliche, that you sort of address that uh, just quickly for those that are listening that are interested? Where do you go for help? What do you do as an individual? Is there an outlet that you can go to? How do you foster that both mentally and physically? Yeah, uh, I think talking about it is a big piece that, you know, whether it's online or with somebody that, you know, is a professional, um, that's that's a huge outlet. And I think just talking about what stresses you out is is really important and it's really beneficial to to anybody. You know, and then just, I think the basic things that you learned in grade school, right? Eat good, exercise, get fresh air. They might seem simple, but, you know, it's, it's super beneficial to make you happy. I mean, get out in the sun. I mean, that's, that's I find that's a, a huge win for me if I could just stand outside for a little while and calm down, recollect myself and realize that, you know what, it, no matter what, everything's going to be fine because you know what you're capable of. I took a lot of calls uh, walking around the building when, when weather would permit uh, <laughs> conference calls and such. I mean, let, let's go back to to physical health, though, uh, in the in the security world, not just the CISO, but but in the in the universe of, of all the jobs. As I travel the world, anecdotally, I, I share about some of my own health issues I had that were really a derivative of stress uh, that led to a, a stroke, actually, that that went to my right kidney. And in sharing that, and being open with other people, and sharing about stress and, and medical issues, they've opened up. Are you aware of any situations like that where we're we're sort of not sharing, but when we begin to share, we all kind of open up about, you know, sort of the lack of health due to the immense stress of the job? I've personally gone through that. And I remember when you and I first met, you shared those stories and it, and it resonated with me. I lost all my hair on my head when I was at Pentagon. And that job was so stressful at, at one point, just based on what we were kind of working through operationally that, no, no kidding, all the hair on my head fell out. I went bald. And the, you know, the doctor was like, yeah, I've, it's stress levels. Like, and I was like, I don't understand. How does that, how does that equate to like me losing my hair? I don't, I didn't quite get that. And yeah, he explained it's a very real thing and it can happen. And, um, you know, since then, you know, I changed jobs, changed my lifestyle a bit and, um, actually a lot and, you know, haven't had that ever happen again. I have all my hair back, but yeah, it's a very real thing. It happens. I've had some people share with me, I mean, stroke heart attack, brain aneurysm, mm. uh, people that have had, and, and interestingly, uh, they follow uh, from Australia to Canada to you know the rest of North America. It's sort of a breach or a large negative outcome, huge incident, and then people get sick 
And I think it happens more than, than we know. You know, in fact, I just heard of somebody this week with a, with a, a CISO that has become very ill, uh, kind of this lifestyle that, that, um, um, that we face. I mean, again, back, I'll ask you the question again now that we've covered this. Is the CISO job, uh, is it a good job? I mean, we have a passion for it, but it sounds like it's kind of dangerous in some ways. Yeah, I, we think about it in this, in this light. It, uh, it's a lot to deal with. I, I don't, you know, maybe some days you don't think it is the, worth it, but I chose this career path for a reason and I'm sticking to it for, for, for a reason. And I, I think that reason is that I, I truly love just solving problems. And I think that's what CISOs you know, really want to do. And if they're willing to deal with the negative consequences of it, then, you know, more power to them and, and figuring out how to make sure that, you know, you don't go through that again, or you're able to better handle the stress um, is, is probably what's going to allow you to continue to do it. But you're right. I've, I've heard of a number of folks who just, they want to go back to do something else. They don't want to have that role. They're going to, you know, maybe just lead uh, security operations or, or services or just get into governance or maybe even go into auditing. Who knows? But like... <laughs> it probably will change people to not want to be in the role again, because I think there is, this is the unspoken thing that, that no one's talking about. You're right. When folks are looking at, Hey, I want to get into this position. You know, you're the senior most person in an organization for security. What does that look like? You know, as far as the responsibility, you know, the salary that's going on with it, the compensation, the respect, the visibility. I mean, that's all really enticing, but do, do people truly know the negative consequences of it? Like has anybody, if you'd been through a breach and not been a CISO, would you consider still being a CISO at an organization? You know, I think that's a, that'd be a fair question to ask somebody as they're looking at this role and figuring out, is it for them or not? I'll jump in there. So I, as bad as it is going through a, a very large breach, it kind of depends on a lot of variables, but the short answer is I wouldn't trade it for anything. <laughs> because as awful as it was, uh, the things that I was able to learn and the experiences, and frankly, the I told you so's, uh, are, are pretty juicy. That is was really good, and it developed. I will say, me, I was not the CISO um, reported into, but I got to do some interesting things, both technically, organizationally, even from a legal perspective. So, going through depositions and being our, you know, it's called a thirty b six candidate, all this stuff. So, I would say. Uh, I think everybody needs to go through one really good breach. Uh, uh, otherwise, you're not going to be able to, to to speak intelligently about the negative outcomes. So you, in order to go through it, you kind of have to live it now. Right. Uh, yeah, no no question. You're helping a lot of different people through side channel security. And as part of this, these tips, you know, this is sort of the core of of part of what you offer. Is there any time where you go and you you present this messaging and members of leadership don't want to hear it. So as you're sort of working on your and this 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 business, your job is to provide this messaging and this sort of this honest brokerage. Um, are there times where people just don't want that message and kind of fire back at you? And and how do you manage that? I think sometimes hearing about a risk is is difficult for people to to comprehend and maybe even be able to accept. And, you know, as a, as a consultant, you know, I'm, it's not my company at the end of the day, you know, the, the business owner is going to be the one who's going to make the decision of what they feel is right for the business. So, you know, I have to then take the approach of, look, I've positioned the best idea that you, you pay me to bring you. I've positioned that idea. If you don't like it or you don't want it, that's fine. 
understand and accept the risk that I've outlined. And let's try to tackle something else that's, you know, maybe second or third to that priority. So, you know, there's really no reason to get into an argument or, or really try to hammer on something that a business owner doesn't want to tackle. So how do you just reposition the, the thinking that risk still needs to be addressed? How do you make them see something else that could just be as valuable or maybe second down on the, on the list of things to do? One bit of advice you, you gave is clear messaging and the idea that your materials need to stand on their own. I know from my past, we've had to create, and then present actually, creating artifacts you know, that, that stand on their own because you may not have the opportunity to address everything in that deck. Uh, maybe one quick tip on that. So you produce maybe 10 slides, but as board meetings go and ELT meetings go, it gets cut down in time. Any lessons there or any observations in terms of doing kind of more with less? Sure. Biggest, biggest thing I learned out of the military was the concept of bluff, bottom line up front. So just position the idea that is the most impactful, the, the key term or concept that you want that person or that group to walk away from, just put it right up front, get there, put it out there, speak to it, and then build. If you have the time, obviously, and the presentation, you know, slides or whatever material to be able to actually do it, build out from there but drive at least the one thing that you want them to know right up front. I like that. I, in my prior life, you'd have times where someone says, hey, I need you for an hour. I need you for half an hour. It's like, you've got 30 seconds. I'm running to the next fire. Uh, so that's uh, bluff. I like that a lot. I think that kind of concludes. If there's any final word you want to share. I think this is great. I, I appreciate you, you bringing me onto this. Thanks, Brian. Take care, everyone. That concludes this episode of the new CISO. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more episodes, suggest a topic or nominate a guest, please visit exabeam.com forward slash podcast. <laughs>